I know on the partnerships team itself is like a team of seven. They're out there pounding the pavement, shaking the trees, that sort of thing. Showing the industry like, hey, this is the way forward. Sometimes you get lucky being prepared. Venture capital right now is not flowing into prop tech. A lot of people have pulled back. This means that anyone who was looking to raise this year is now looking at, oh, shoot, I might not be able to raise. Or next year. They need to extend their runway and not burn up their cash. Mm-hmm. So people are generally in that sense, they pull back on paid advertising. Welcome to the Marketing Moguls Podcast, where we talk to the big shots, the heavy hitters, the cream of the crop in the world of marketing. This is a show where we sit down with the most brilliant minds in the industry, and we pick their brains to find out what makes them tick, what makes them successful, and sometimes what makes them want to pull their hair out. Each episode, we'll be talking to top executives, entrepreneurs, even influencers who have made their mark in the marketing world, and we'll be asking them tough questions like, What's the best way to increase conversions? Or how do you come up with a killer ad campaign? Or why do marketers always wear black? But let's be real, we're not just here to talk shop, we're also here to have some fun. So we'll be discussing some of the latest trends, we're gonna be sharing some hilarious marketing fails, and maybe even trying to convince our guests to let us in on their secret to creating the perfect meme. So whether you're a marketer, a business owner, or just someone who's fascinated by the world of marketing, this podcast is for you. Sit back, Grab your favorite drink and join us as we dive into the minds of the marketing moguls that are shaping the industry today. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Moguls Podcast. We have an awesome guest joining us today. It's Nate Smoyer, who's the head of marketing over at Obi. Nate, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Hey, good morning. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, definitely. Before we get started and get too much into the weeds here, I was hoping you could just take a second to introduce yourself to myself, to the audience. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'm Nate Smore. I lead marketing for a startup called Obi. We're an insure tech company focused on providing coverage for real estate investors that invest in the one to four unit category. So your residential real estate rentals. Aside from my work, I've been a podcast host myself for a few years. So we've got episode 143 going up later today on the Tech Nest, the PropTech podcast. I interview leaders, founders, and innovators to showcase what they're doing to transform the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. It's been a hobby. It's made me some money directly with a few deals here and there that I've done, but mostly indirectly has been the biggest benefits. As far as learning, way more valuable than my college education, which we're going to just go ahead and assume I never went to college and I'm just (laughs) going to delete that from my history. You know, outside of work though, and on my spare time, I describe myself as an ultra athlete in the making. I've done a few 50Ks. I'm training for my first 50 miler mountain race later this summer. I like to ride motorcycles. I've got a Harley. I've got an Indian. So when I'm not either lost in the woods or staring at a computer screen, I have to get out, put some miles in on the road. I live in South Dakota. So a lot of people think that I only get like three or four months a year for riding, but I was out this weekend. It's February. I think I've only missed maybe like three or four weekends this winter. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. You can see, well, we have the screen blurred here a little bit, but I really enjoy reading and studying. I'm a student of my craft. I've been a marketer as far as I can remember. My first business wasn't all that legitimate, but there was marketing to it. I stole all the school supplies out of my classmates' desks because there was no school store. It was fifth grade and sold them back to them. I did the whole like shoveling snow and mowing lawns. So I'm originally from the Philly area. So you get all four seasons, you know, so you get opportunity to make money year round. Basically, my first legitimized business, if you will, was multi-level marketing. I jumped right into it and I went to one of those big conferences. And this is one of the things where, are you a fan of The Office? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when Michael Scott's pitching him, he's like, it's not a pyramid scheme. And Jim, Jim <laughs> draws. You know, it's like, kind of looks like a pyramid. Pyramid schemes are illegal. Network marketing is not a pyramid scheme. There's reasons why they are not a pyramid scheme, despite the fact they look like a pyramid. The rebuttal there inside of network marketing is, well, isn't your job a pyramid scheme? Because you have your CEO at the top and then people report to that person. Anyway, I went to one of the big conferences and this was back in 2005. Mm-hmm. And the guy was talking about selling websites. And I was like, man, that is the thing. I had already been keeping blogs. I was like already blogging. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was doing it. I was like, I want to sell some websites. But I didn't know a thing or two about anything business. I didn't know anyone in business. I didn't know anyone who did any sales. The guy's like, look, if you don't know who to sell to, you can pick up the phone book and call through the phone book. I bought the website package. <laughs> My drive home, it was from Ocean City, Maryland back to Philly. I didn't have any money. So I had just enough gas in my Geo Metro to get home. I bought the pancake breakfast McDonald's. And then I went back in for like extra syrup and butter because I was like, I was so hungry. I literally didn't have any money left to buy anything else. And I went back home. I dialed through the phone book calling businesses that didn't have a website listed. Mm -hmm. And then the people who agreed to meet with me and then wanted a proposal, I was like, cool. Now I have to figure out that part. I don't know how to do that. I didn't have a computer with functioning internet. And I had to go to the community college, which I wasn't a student at and use the computers in the lobby to build these websites on this gooey WYSIWYG builder. So that's kind of the start to a whole bunch of different things over the years. Man, yeah, your background is so interesting and entertaining at the same time. I have like a million questions that I want to ask you right now. Yeah, I'm going to have to reel myself in here because I want to talk to you about everything like running the motorcycles, all of it. But in terms of keeping it on target with the show here, can you Mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit about like how you went from where you were doing the network marketing, you were going to these shows, then you started doing the websites and everything. How did that transition into working, let's say a more legitimate type of thing with what you're doing now with like OB and everything like that? The biggest problem is I didn't know how to get to where I wanted to be. I knew what I wanted to do. So I didn't go to college right out of high school. I took four years off. And I took four years off, like I had some genuine legitimate reasons for the first year. And then the next ones, I was like, I didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working for a home builder starting 2006. I was a building maintenance coordinator. And then I took on security. My first day on security, like we had an arson to deal with. So that was kind of fun. Working for a home builder starting in 06, I got the greatest lessons in cash flow management and financing and what was really happening. We had a marketing director there that we declared martial law internally, meaning everyone's job was to sell homes. Mm-hmm. And he said, no idea is a bad idea. No idea is too big. Everything, you know, and he kept the folder and he was like, everything goes in there. So I just started rapid firing ideas. And I was like, we should turn all of our trucks into mobile billboards. We could build literally billboards on the back of the truck. These guys are driving from the job site, you know, 30, 45 minutes home. They can be promoting the communities the whole way to and from work. And we have spare trucks. Why don't we give them to other employees and they can drive them to and from work. And we're talking the Philly suburbs. So you're getting a lot of eyeballs. We did it. And then there was a radio host who wanted to do new things every day for a year. I just gorilla pushed, hey, why don't you come on out and learn how to drive a backhoe? She'd never done that. So we were on the radio for free. And there was all kinds of like little things like that that got me the taste. But it was my manager. You know, I was talking about going to college. Oh, I can't believe we're going back to this. And <laughs> she was like, what are you waiting for? And I, and I was like, I don't know. I don't, I, just don't, I don't know how to get there. And that was the biggest gap on like how to get there. Mm-hmm. So long story short, I ended up going to school 
finished my four-year degree in about two and a half years. Then I started a business as a marketing agency and knew nothing again, still didn't know anything. I floundered for solid two years before I had a business partner. I was like, Look, let's call it quits. This is clearly not working. We are getting nowhere. And then a friend just hit me up and said, Hey, you should check out this job. And it was with a software company north of Seattle. Mm-hmm. It was a social media coordinator. And that's kind of where I was like, driving myself and working to understand and learn and positioning myself. The definitions of what a social media manager was at the time was weird and nebulous. It could be a lot of creativity, could just be writing and posting and scheduling. And that was to my advantage. The criteria on who was a social media manager was so loose. I could qualify. (laughs) And I think what they saw was I was just a pure hustler. During the interview, they were asking me, what are you doing for work? And I said, well, I just shut me down my company. I said, but you know, they wanted to bring me on. I said, well, I can't start until after this date. And they were like, why? I said, well, I'm attempting to break a world record for the world's largest pie fight. I need to wait until that's done and then I can come out. The VP hit me with a question. I think he was challenging me in a way. He said, well, how do you make money doing that? And I was so offended by the question. I was like, you don't, this is for charity. Like, how dare you? In an interview, an instant in the true East Coast native, like just push back, like, what a stupid question. <laughs> I had no idea, though. He's also from the Philly area. So he totally resonated, understood my stance, and I got the job. So that was ultimately that was this really weird path eventually finding my way to a company that had some structure and could provide some of that rigor and a big sandbox for me to do a lot of learning. Yeah, I mean, I have to say it is incredibly encouraging and reassuring to hear the path that you've taken. I think oftentimes, especially when we reach like the higher levels, right? When we have director level and above heads of marketing, VPs of marketing, I think oftentimes there's a thought that you have to follow a very rigid structure, right? You have to go to school. Sometimes you have to get a master's degree. You have to work your time. You have to have certain jobs, all that stuff. So to hear that you can make it to the level that you're at and do some of these really interesting things that you're doing today without maybe having to follow that typical path is actually really reassuring. And I think a lot of people listening will feel a sense of relief to hear that, you know, maybe they don't have to be as rigid as they may have originally thought. If you don't mind me asking, what did you study in school? Yeah, so I ended up going to this school. It's called an opportunity school is what they would call it. Meaning, if you didn't take your SATs, there's still an opportunity for you to go to college. (laughs) It was business admin. It was just a standard business degree. They didn't even have a marketing major. They had a marketing minor. The one thing that I'll tell you that did come out in my favor was all my electives I took as accounting courses. Mm. So I had just as many accounting courses as I did marketing courses. I don't know who it was. Somewhere someone was like, marketing people don't know how to do math. And I was like, oh, if you control the money, you run the company. I was like, well, if I get some basics training there, maybe that'll move me further along in my marketing career. You're totally right on the path. It wasn't a stellar school. If I said it, no one's heard of Enola, Pennsylvania. No one's going to know where the college was. No one's (laughs) heard of the college. How I was making money at that time when I got that job was in the winter, I was cheesesteak vending at car shows and motorcycle shows. And in summertime, I was traveling with a stunt team. I was an MC. I'd been doing that for five years. You don't make great money on doing either. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You spend a lot of time on the road. You know, you could have a day where there's six to 12 hours of travel. And then you've got three to five, six hours of work doing the shows. I think I was getting paid maybe 50 bucks, 100 bucks a day. It was depending on the day, you know. Yep. I didn't have any expenses. 
to get to and from things, but still it wasn't easy. If you're interested and you want to build on it, you just quite literally have to do that. Even if the path takes longer, it's not exactly linear. Yeah, definitely. Hey there, we want to take a quick second to thank our sponsors of this episode, Tier 11. Do you ever sit at your computer wondering why you're spending so much money on advertisement for your business that drives little to no revenue? Does the idea of another month with low engagement make you want to pull your hair out? Well, you're in luck because the team of professionals over at Tier 11 can handle these issues in no time flat and make you forget all about your nightmare ad experience. Tier 11 is an advertising agency that manages over $100 million in annual ad spend and has more than 15 years of advertising experience. So it's pretty safe to say they know their stuff. Stop wasting your time and your budget on advertising that doesn't work and trust the professionals instead. Head over to www.tier11.com today and chat with the team member to learn more about how they can help you get more customers and increase their lifetime value. That's T-I-E-R-E-L-E-V-E-N.com. Now back to the podcast. And it's interesting too, because my path follows like a similar structure to yours, I believe, whereas I didn't even really know too much about marketing. I was kind of doing it in my jobs without really knowing that I was doing it. And I studied mm. geography in school. And so geography... <laughs> Nobody studies my... geography. Exactly. I was like, I just liked maps. That sounds really probably kind of dumb the way I'm saying it, but it's true. Like I loved maps. And so I was like, I'm just going to study geography until I graduated. And then I was like, well, wait a second. What do I do now? I'm like, I... Surveying. Yeah, well, yeah, I, you know, I thought about all of that sort of stuff in kind of a similar path to you where like in these jobs that I was working, there was always an aspect mm. of marketing that was more creative and really piqued my interest. And so over time, it's blossomed into what it is now, which is like doing podcasts and marketing and all this sort of stuff. So it's very interesting to hear that the path that you followed and everything. And I think a lot of people will connect with that as well. I wanted to ask, though, more specifically about Obi. Could you talk to us mm. a little bit more about what you all do? I know you already briefly brought it up, but can you give us a little bit more information about the company, really what you all do? Another great thing would be is to hear more about your target market, like who you all really work with the most and who you try to target with your products. Yeah. So, you know, I first learned about Obi about three years ago. I met the co-founders when I was living in Chicago. I was working at a different prop tech startup called Avail. I invited them onto my podcast. People who don't know podcasts, I think are some of the most powerful tool that you can possibly have in your toolbox. And when I had my agency, that's how I found my previous startup role. And then of course, that's how I met my current startup founders was having them on my show. And Obit was much different. It started as more of like a asset management platform. And then a way of monetizing that was generating insurance leads. And for big commercial properties, a few policies pays off nicely, but that's really tough to scale. The founders really recognized that, but they saw that they were gaining momentum in the single family rentals category. When we think about the rental landscape in America, and there's a lot of talk about it right now because it's mm -hmm. all the rage, but about half of rentals in the United States are actually owned by independent mom and pops type people like myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a full-time job. I have to work full-time to do what I got to do, but I've been building something towards my retirement supplemental income on the side. So we have a few properties that generate cash flow for us. That market, though, is extraordinarily fragmented. About 12 million of them own and operate their own property, but there's about 18 million individual investors. 
Okay. They're hard to reach because that's not what their LinkedIn profile describes them as. Right. They're, they're not a easily identifiable audience. If you go to Facebook ads and you want to target real estate investors in the United States, you're going to find that there's like 40 some million people that have an interest in real estate investing. So you already know immediately you're going to burn a lot of cash to like reduce your audience size down to people who might be the right fit. But with insurance, it's really interesting is because it can't just be the right demographics. It can't just be the right interest because intent must be present. You just don't shop insurance without intent. To some degree, it's a commoditized product. There's only a few carriers that want to work in this arena. They have to think about, it's not just the risk of the owner that they're taking on in the property, but it's the unknown risk of who the renter is that adds a new layer, a new component. The revolution to what we're doing and bringing to the market is actually speed and customer experience. Previously, you'd have to find an insurance agent who had appointments to be able to sell some sort of landlord insurance policy. Not the same as homeowners insurance. They're very different. And insurance companies will tell you that if you try and make a claim with the wrong type, right? You might have to wait a few days. You might have to wait a week. Well, the problem is if you're trying to buy a property, which is likely when you're searching for insurance, you have what we call in the industry, time is of the essence. And so you have deadlines. You need to line up things, know your costs, to confirm your underwriting on the deal makes sense, that you're going to have some positive cash flow because inflation and capital expenditures, and you want to continually put money aside for that. So you have to have some positive cash flow. Being able to get an instant quote and a bindable quote, which meaning you can you know pay for the policy right there and then, that's a significant advantage. But Obi's gone the next step. And we thought about distribution. I talked about it's a fragmented audience. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's ever sold to a fragmented audience knows this can be really difficult, especially if the indicators for when they're ready to buy are hard to predict. So push advertising, hard to predict where intent is. You can have the right audience, but without the intent, you know you're still going to overspend. And we have to be mindful of that or our customer acquisition costs and cost per leads and all that kind of jazz. We thought, okay, well, what if we could get in front of the customer before at the moment of highest need? Well, we know that's when buying a property. So embedded insurance. We're able to actually work directly with lenders and we embed Obi into their platforms, into their workflows. So when you're getting the loan and they say, great, do you have insurance? Of course, no, you don't. You just got pre-approval for the loan or you right. just got secured for the loan. They say, okay, well, you can go get insurance, go find an agent and call them. Or we have a partner, they're called Obi. You can complete the form right here. And complete the form, hey, look, that satisfies all the loan requirements that the lender needs to see. We are good to go. We get the business, the loan company, Think about the customer experience. It looks like they're delivering. It's so much smoother. It's so much more seamless. And it makes a lot of sense. We also work with a lot of platforms that do rent collection and listing paperwork. Well, it's all digital now, so digital signatures and that sort of yeah. thing. Working with them, we can find other triggers, but at least we know our audience is truly well-defined. So by using embedded insurance, we've sidestepped like the traditional marketing paths and really put customer experience at the forefront of like, how could you make this as best as possible for them, but also to our favor, because the timing of targeting intent is as best as it can possibly be. That is incredibly intelligent too, because yeah, like you mentioned, you're going straight to the source basically. And the right. way that you put that where they can be like, do you guys have insurance? No? Oh, well, we have something for you. That is perfect. I wanted to ask, what is the ratio or a roundabout estimate of how many customers are coming in from this embedded style of insurance versus how many mm -hmm. you all have coming in just organically that just find out about Obi and want to use it kind of just on their own? Is there a big discrepancy there? That's a great question because that kind of challenges, Nate, what are you doing? <laughs> 
<laughs> so no, um, right now the beautiful thing is, and even though I run marketing, right, mm-hmm. you would think that I would be the most bullish on marketing. Our channel partnerships is the value. Right. Anybody can do a marketing funnel. And that's not interesting to me. But the fact that we were, and we still are the only embeddable insurance product for landlords nationwide. There's the other embedded marketing funnels, meaning you fill out a form and then someone calls you. We're the only ones where you can get quote and bind on the spot on someone else's website. That's our leading acquisitions channel and by a, a fair margin. Now, on the other side is I'm closing the gap on our inbound efforts. The previous startup I was at was called Avail. Mm-hmm. We did property management software for independent mom and pop landlords. So I have been in this space exclusively since early 2019. So I know the playbook. I know how to reach them. I know it works. No, it doesn't. And we're executing that playbook and avail for what it's worth. At 18 months after starting, we sold the business to realtor.com. I know I have a winning formula for this audience. Internally for me, I don't really talk about it, but like for me specifically, I think about I'm gonna beat our channel partnership distribution team. Like, yep. I am I am out to beat them. But the better I do, the better our channel partnerships are actually doing. So we even have right now we're hiring specifically a manager to support them on marketing our embedded insurance. And on the partnerships team itself is like a team of seven. They're out there pounding the pavement, shaking the trees, that sort of thing. Showing the industry, like, hey, this is the way forward. Sometimes you get lucky being prepared. Venture capital right now is not flowing into prop tech. A lot of people have pulled back. This means that anyone who is looking to raise this year is now looking at, oh, shoot, I might not be able to raise. Or next year, they need to extend their runway and not burn up their cash. Mm-hmm. So people are generally in that sense, they pull back on paid advertising. They reduce the growth at all costs or growth at higher costs efforts. They also reduce feature development. They don't build new features because building new features typically requires more engineers and engineers is very expensive. The question used to be, do we build it or do we buy it? That used to be how you'd think about building a platform, right? And now we have embedded. Embedded, you don't have to buy, but you don't have to build. For us, we can help a partner turn on embedded insurance in a day or less and give a really good experience to their customers. So the timing of where the market's moving, people know they have to differentiate. They've got to add to the bottom line, but they can't add to their expense column. Embedded solutions really makes a lot of sense. And embedded insurance, something that you know, like 90% of those investors are going to need because some lender requires it. It's pretty, pretty solid to our advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. And just thinking through that process too, it's so interesting to hear that you all have kind of like two separate ways to do it. And I love that you're like, yeah, I'm internally competing because all that's (laughs) going to do is just help the business in general, right? Because channel partnerships, if they're doing really well and then marketing is doing really well, then that's just going to combine and make things even better for everyone. I like that drive. And earlier you mentioned that in the past, people have recognized that you were like a hustler. It sounds like that drive is still there, which is good. It hasn't gone away. Mm -hmm. You know, you still are hustling and competing and everything. So that's awesome. We're a little short on time here, but before I let you go, I did want to ask, especially for someone like you who has had a less than typical path leading to where you are today. Do you have any sort of tips or tricks or maybe just any sort of experience that you can share with someone who's listening that might want to one day end up in a place just like where you are and be a head of marketing and do the type of things you're doing? Any sort of advice that you can give to those people that are listening to kind of help them gravitate towards Mm -hmm. this route? I think a lot of us tend to see our peers kind of take off. I watch my peers around me just 
lobe right past me in their careers and trajectory. And they were all earning their manager roles and they bought a house a few years before me. And it seemed like everything they were doing was before me. But somewhere along the way, I realized that it was just going to have to be a steady improvement. That was going to be my path. It was going to be a little bit slower. It was going to be a little less exciting. It was just going to take a little bit more time and effort. But to some degree, those are the cards I was dealt. I don't have the introductions. I don't come from money. I don't come from industry insiders. You know, my whole way into prop tech was non-traditional. I didn't come from any prop tech. I just started doing it. And then people said, okay, hey, it looks like you're doing it. It's over time. It's consistency over time. I didn't start taking up endurance training until late 2021. So I didn't always have that specific perspective, but I do have that perspective now. It's like, if it's a consistent overtime effort, the compound effects are really hard to dispute. And for someone who even like drops back for six months or a year from building and pushing and creating, it sets you back much further than that. I'm sure Susie Orman or one of those other financial gurus will tell you that with how much you put in your 401k and how much that sets you back over your lifetime and yada, yada, yada. You know, I want to talk about just you just pure effort towards something. It does have to be a consistent thing. And that's why for me, it's so important. Like the books behind me, college wasn't the ticket. I left college. I still didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know anything. It wasn't until I did my own digging and tried things and had to hit my face a few times pretty hard on either different business ideas or trying out with other companies or whatever it was. That's really it. I'm sure there's someone else has much better advice there on like how to get a certain skill or course to take or things like that. But for me, it's just been grind and it's been a consistent effort towards that. No, I mean, it's good to hear that. And it's good to hear that honest feedback because sometimes that's what people really need to hear. And I love how you mentioned reading and kind of that continuing to learn that continuous education and everything and never giving up with that, because that's a big part of our show here is that we hope that the people that listen can learn from this, right? And can have this Mm -hmm. be a part of their repertoire of tools that they can use to continue that process of learning and everything. So that resonates a lot. I just want to say, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us tonight. Nate, it's been great to have you here and to chat about everything. And it's great to hear your insights on all of it. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you for having me on. Thanks. It's a lot of fun. Of course. All right, everybody. So that's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Marketing Moguls podcast. And we will catch you in the next one. You know why most agencies fail in the first 30 days? Well, they don't do the work beforehand. And they realize once they start managing ad accounts and doing all the things that working alongside businesses like yours in order to get you the results that you want, they waste a whole lot of time in the first 30, 60, 90 days, and they're fumbling around in the dark. That's because they have not used what we do over at Tier 11, what we refer to as the strategic growth plan. Now, a strategic growth plan is a deep dive into what has gone on inside your ad accounts and your business with all the important financial metrics that you need in order to scale and grow. We analyze all that, come up with a plan that's 30, 60, 90 days out, and then we use that as our game plan once we start actively managing ads, once we start doing our creative research, once we start doing all our after-the-click extensive tracking on dev, but the plan is the key. And if you have an agency that is failing you right now, it's probably because they don't have a plan. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So get your strategic growth plan over at tier11.com. Hit the big pink button, fill out the application, 
And we'll be in touch with you how we can help you scale and grow your business through getting more customers and increasing their lifetime value. That's all we do at Tier 11. Head on over to tier11.com. Get your growth plan today.